0: Welcome to The Time Machine. Experience the cancer journey through the eyes of the traveler. Welcome to The Time Machine. On today's episode, we welcome Pastor Ron Palmer. I met Pastor Ron just a few months ago and was really struck by his story as a minister for nearly 50 years, um, as a pastor and an author. And also as a a man that has faced cancer between him and his wife now three times and have won. This is his story. Welcome, Pastor Ron Palmer, to the Time Machine Podcast. I'm excited to have you today. And um, it's been good getting to know you. It's been um just a few months now, but it, it seems like much longer because of yes. the conversations we've had. And so, uh, would would love for you to to share, you know, your your cancer journey, starting with, with diagnosis and and uh, how things got started for you.
1: Um, if if it's permissible, I would like to kind of start with the history of it. Sure. Um, I first came in contact with the idea of cancer when I was ten years old. And I remember vividly in my mind, uh, we were living in southern South Dakota and my mother came home from getting the mail and she walked up the steps and opened a letter and started crying and I asked her what the problem was and she said that her mother had been diagnosed with cancer. I had heard about cancer but had no abs- no personal interaction with it. And so, uh, I guess it was probably about two or three years later that grandma passed away and that was the last that I know of, uh cancer in any historical setting in our family until um, June of 1988 and my oldest sister who was 52 years old at the time called me and told me that um, she was diagnosed with cancer of the liver and they did an operation on her and removed a tumor about the size of a walnut and um, told her that she should be better than she's been in 10 or 15 years. Well, a couple months later, she said that she was having a lot of pain. She lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, and, and we have been down visiting him for a while. She says that she was having a lot of pain, and when she told me the area, I said, that's not from your surgery. And uh, so I advised her to go into the doctor and, and have um, do an exam. She said that she had done <clears throat> that for three different times. And the doctor finally came to the conclusion that it must be all in her head, because of Some kind of um, emotional trauma left over from the surgery a couple months before. But I told her, I said, Now you go in and you insist and you ask him if you could do an MRI. So she went in and insisted and they did an MRI and she called me back and she said, Well, she's calling little brother. She said, Well, little brother, she said, I got some bad news for you. And uh, I said, What's that? And she says, Well, she said, I've been diagnosed with small cell cancer. Uh, seated throughout my intest, the entire intestinal tract, and my lungs. I said, "How long did the doctors give you?" She says, six months to two years." And I said, "No." I said, "You need to get your house in order." She is a born again Christian. I had the the privilege of leading her to Christ in um, on the last Sunday, July of nineteen seventy three, and this was in eighty eight. Um, she said, "Well, how long do you think we?" Uh, I, have because I' had a history of working in surgery I've worked in surgery for about 48 years when I retired but I told her I, says, I would say you probably have from two weeks to three months and she said that soon I said yes well now this was in July when she called me last of July when she called me and um, the first of September well she called me on August the 30th and said that the doctor says, if we wanted to see her alive, we would have to get there within 24 hours. That's, we can't do that too far, and we have to wait until payday, which is Friday. So my brother and I, Russ and I, drove uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska. We got there on September the 1st of 88, uh, and uh, went into the hospital. The nurse said that my sister would not recognize us because of the fact that the pain from the cancer had increased so much through the night that she had uh, get, increased her morphine four times. And so she is in a morphine-induced coma. And I said, my sister will um, recognize me. And she said, well, how do you know that? I said, because the Lord is going to enable that to happen. So she took me back there, and my sister was laying there in a, a fetal position on her left side. And she was moaning as she was breathing. And I reached down took her hand, and I said, Ruby, I said, so, do you know who this is? She says, yes, it's Ron. She says, is Russ with you? And I says, yes, he is. He's on the other side of the bed. So we stood there, and we prayed for a while, and we talked for a while. And um, I could see that she was dozing off again, so we went and sat down with some of the other family. About half an hour later, she was moaning and groaning so much, I turned to the family, and I said, I'm going to go and pray for her and ask the Lord to take her out of this misery and do it quickly and painlessly. And they agreed. So we went up and gathered around the bed. I took Ruby's hand. I said, Sis, I said, I'm going to pray the Lord will take you out of this pain and uh, take you to glory with Him. And she said, Please do. And I prayed and she says, Thank you. And we went back and sat down. And about 35 or 40 minutes later, we were t- talking in very hushed tones. And she says, What? And we weren't talking to her, she was not in the conversation. She said, what? And everyone looked around the bed and I motioned my finger and my lips to to be quiet that it wasn't us she was talking to. And she said, what? Yes. Yes, I I understand. Let go? She said, I'm, I'm trying to let go. Yes. Okay. Okay, she said, I'm, I'm letting go. And all of a sudden, as I said, she's laid on her left arm or on her left side in fetal position. She pushed herself about halfway up off the pillow and reached up towards the corner of the room. She says. I'm coming and she just laid back down and I got up and went over and checked her vital signs and she was gone. I called the nurse and she said, what's the problem? I said, well, there's no problem. My sister's gone. And she said, well, how do you know? Are you a doctor or something? I said, no, I'm not a doctor. I said, but I spent 30 30 years or so in in medical work and um, I said, I know when there's no vital signs, there's no life. She said, well, let me check the vital signs. and So she checked them. And she said, well, I'm sorry, but you're right, your sister's gone. And I said, well, I know I'm right, but I'm not sorry that my sister's gone. And she said, well, what, what do you mean? I said, are you kidding? I said, look at her. I said, she is just skin and bone. She was locked up in that, that sick, diseased body in racked with pain. I said, now, her Lord just stepped into this room and took her home to her reward and glory. I said, and you think I'm going to be sorry about that? I said, lady, I would not call my sister back if I had the power to do so on the best minute of the best day of her life. And the nurse looked at me kind of shocked. She says, well, I, I wish everyone felt that way about their loved one's passing. And I said, I wish everyone's loved one was as ready to go as my sister was. Now, I mentioned that rather extensively because... That was when I came face to face with cancer. That's when, you know it, it, hit, it hit home. And um, after that, uh, I had some folks in the church that, that passed away with cancer and I was with them in the, in the end stages there and um, dealt with that. Um, God has given me the blessing of having the opportunity to deal with people uh, in um, extensively in grief and loss and death and dying. And I've had the privilege, um, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, just younger than she is, uh, who, who was married to my brother, uh, she got cancer of the lungs and um, she had COPD and she passed away in 1996. And um, at that time, she was living with us. We we took her in so because my brother had to work and things, and and uh, we took her in so that Arlie could take care of her and be sure that she was not alone at any time. Well, one evening we were sitting around the dining table, and um, we heard something fall, and then we heard her cry out, and we ran back to the the bedroom, which was did the hall right across the hallway from our bedroom, and uh, when I opened the door, she was just pulling herself, trying to get up off the floor, and I picked her up, and I asked what happened, she says, well, I went to the bathroom, and when I came back and tried to get to bed, I fell, and I said, okay, so I lifted her up, and and put her in, in the bed, and uh, covered her up, and the family came in, and gathered around her, And I could tell that she was very um, agitated and and anxious. And I put my arm around her shoulders on a pillow. And I said, Bonnie, I says, I want you to just relax. I want you to listen to me for a minute. I says, you know Jesus is your Savior. And she says, yes, Ron, I do. I said, and you've been going through this fight for about two years now. She said, I'm so tired. of it," And I said, okay. I said, it's your time for the Lord to take you home. I said, and please, don't be afraid of the unknown because the unknown is what God has prepared for us. The unknown has nothing to do with Satan since you, since you know Christ the Savior. The unknown has nothing to do with Satan. The unknown is not something I need to worry about but something that I need to eagerly anticipate and uh, the scripture says Eye has not seen nor ears heard nor has entered in the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them to love him. I said, so that that unknown is just a, a doorway to blessings beyond our compare. I said, So you just relax. And she says, okay, and she leaned back and said, I can't breathe. I can't I said, Bonnie, just relax. And all of a sudden she took a breath, she looked around, she says, Okay, so well, goodbye. She says, I'll see you all later. <laughs> and she just dropped her head and that was it. Um, so that also was personal there because she was right there in our home and, and we ministered to her for 16 months um, before she passed away. And uh, when when she first came in, my, mother, my wife and her had always been very close. And um, my wife says, uh, I'm so glad that I can, uh, be involved in helping my younger sister. She says, I am so glad for that. And uh, when it came time to, when we could see that, that her time was getting close, my wife came to me and she says, Ron, she says, I'm sorry. She says, but I think when it comes Bonnie's time to go, we need to put her in a hospice or an extended care facility. I said, okay, if that's what you think. I said, but why is that? She said, I can't stand the thought of my sisters, close we dying in my house. She said, I'm afraid I'd never be able to walk into that room again. And I said, honey, I said, when she dies, she's not actually dying. She's transitioning from this life into the life of, of glory and peace with Jesus. I said, Jesus said in John 11, um, he that believeth on me shall never die, believest thou this? I said, well, the Christians, it's a transition, as we well know. I said, so you don't have to be concerned about it. I said, I'll tell you what. as you pray about it, and I'm willing to do anything that you desire to do. And she said, okay. A couple days later, she came to me, and she says, remember what I was talking to you about, putting bond in extended care? I said, yes. She says, I don't want to do that. She says, I want to <clears throat> have her here and be able to minister to her, and walk her through the transition. And I said, okay. And so, I think that was about three days before Bonnie passed. And after Bonnie had passed, Arlie came to me and she says, Honey, let me tell you something. She said, I would not take a million dollars for the experience that I had of helping my sister transition out of this life of misery and into that life of glory. And you know, now that's one thing that I really thank God for, is for um, giving us not, not only the ability to minister to people, because as I said, we've had the opportunity to do a lot of that, but to really comprehend what death is. We had a, um, a lady in our church, oh, it's been problem. 10 years ago since they came and they were in our church for about four years and then her husband passed away and then she continued to come for three years and then she finally passed away but the thing was she, she's an elderly they, they were both elderly and i was teaching one night uh on a, i don't remember sunday night or wednesday night, but i was teaching on the subject of of death and dying and and the fear of things and she raised her hand i says yes audrey what is it she says Oh, pastor, I'm I'm so afraid of the idea of dying. I said, "Are you a Christian?" She says, "Oh yes, she says, I'm a born again Christian. She says, I accepted Jesus as my savior." And she says, uh, "And I love him, but but I'm I'm afraid of dying, and I don't know." Why. I said, "Well, it's the fact of the fear of the unknown." She says, "That's it. I don't I don't know what's going to happen, and that's what scares me so much." And I pointed at the door of the room, which was closed. And I said, Audrey, I says, do you see that door? And she says, yes, Pastor. I it. I said, now I want you to use your imagination for just a moment. And I want you to imagine Jesus himself in the flesh, standing on the other side of that closed door with his arms outstretched to welcome you. What would you do? And she looked at me and she took a deep breath. She says, well, Pastor, she says, I would get to that door just as fast as I could. She says I would try to run. And in my shape, it would be hard. But she said, I I would get to that door just as fast as I could. And I said, Audrey, that door is death. And she said, what What do you mean? I said, all death is, is the doorway between here and the eternity future. And when we are Christians, when we've accepted Christ love love the Lord, He's waiting right on the other side of the door. And he is going to receive us into what he has prepared for us. And she looked at me kind of funny. And also a sudden, there was a change in her features. Her, her entire personality, her, her her looks changed. And she started to smile. And she says, Pastor? And I says, yes, i She says, I'm not afraid anymore. About three years, three and a half years later, when she finally passed away, I went to see her... Two days before she passed. And uh she was in that state where she was trying to transition and half the time she is in a coma out of touch with reality. And I walked up and I says, Audrey, and she kind of like that, and I said, Audrey, and she opened her eyes, she says, Yes. I said, Uh, do you know who I am? She says, Yes, Pastor, I know who you are. She said, and guess what? That's what she said, I know it soon, and I'm not afraid at all. She's in fact, I'm looking forward to it, to being with Jesus and with Mert. That was her husband, with Jesus and with Mert. And she says, I'm looking forward to it. A couple, three days later, she passed away, and um, I held her services. A great service. Now, she did not have cancer, okay? But now, I was saying this, from just from the status of, of being afraid of what cancer means. Because most people... Most people who are diagnosed with cancer, in the back of their mind, they have taken that cancer and put death sentence in there. It's just inevitable. And that's, people relate to that in one way or another, usually depending on whether they're a Christian or not. Because God gives the Christian the assurance that death is not the end, it's just the beginning of what he has for us. And so with that as a, a fundamental uh, precept of, of our life and our, our believing, that gives a person the confidence that um, they really need to make that transition. Um, we talked about Wes, you know, uh, my son-in-law, and him and my daughter went back east here a couple, three years ago, something like that, and... Um, I believe one of his aunts was uh, very sick and and uh, she was dying and and she is just fussing and and uh, complaining and and she was a Christian, and when Wes got there he walked in he said well, how are you doing and she started to, he said stop. Of course Wes is pretty blunt with things, but he says stop right now stop, and she's what 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 he says you're a Christian, she says yes he says then die like one. She said, what, what do you mean? He says, where are you going? And she stopped and she said, well, I'm, I'm going to heaven. He says, then why not show that in your life to your family and friends that are left here in this little bit of time that you have? She looked at him and she says, oh my goodness. She says, you're right. Wes says, from that time on, there was a change. Now she passed away, I don't know. Few days, weeks, and a couple months, something like that later. But her husband called Wes and said she was a different woman from the time that you talked to her. And it wasn't that she was not a Christian, she was, but she was a Christian that was full of doubt and fear and uncertainty. And when Wes just brought the realities of what God offers us to her, she realized them and it totally changed her whole demeanor as far as life and death is concerned. And so we were living, just doing wonderful, thought everything was fine. So on October the 14th of 1999, and my wife and her sister, her oldest sister, came to pick up, pick me up. Uh, we only had one vehicle at a time, and so they came to pick me up after work. And I walked out and we had, uh, a uh, 1998 uh, Buick Skylark. It's one of those little ones, real low-built ones. And um, I walked up and I says, would you like to have me drive? Uh, drive, And she said, nope. She said, I'm going to show for you today. She said, you get in the passenger seat. So her older sister Donna got out of the passenger seat and got in the back seat, and I got in the passenger seat. And the, way I, well, the reason I go into details is because it turned out to be so... Um, so definitive as the outcome of what's going to happen. And we pulled out, and she says, well, we're going to go up to Denny Minholt Chevrolet, and that's when Denny Minhold Chevrolet was downtown, rather than out in West End. She said, we're going to go up to Denny Minholt Chevrolet, get Donna's vehicle, take it out to the house, then she and I are going to take you out for a steak dinner. And I said, well, that works for me. Let's go. Well, we drove up to 18th and turned left and, um, or, I'm sorry, we drove up to 2nd Avenue North and turned left. And we were going to go to, I think, Denny Minholt was on 16th or something like that. And I said, take 2nd Avenue. I said, bring it right behind the garage. And she said, okay. As we were going up 2nd Street, at the corner of uh, 2nd Avenue North and um, 18th Street, there was a full-size Jeep coming down. And he was doing about 40, 45 miles an hour. And he came through the stop sign. And hit us broadside, and uh, it caved. The, he hit us right in the passenger door, and it drove the passenger door all the way in against the steering wheel. And when he hit, I had I had heard my sister-in-law scream, and I turned around to see what it was. And when he hit, I saw my wife. She was thrown over like that, and then of course she was secured in seat belt, hanging on the steering wheel, and she came back. And there's just a horrible whiplash. And I thought, she is really hurt. And I was just as calm and clear-minded as I am right now. I mean, I knew what had happened and I I didn't understand that for quite some time. And uh, I thought, I need to brace myself because we're gonna tip over and I'm gonna need to help them. So I put my right arm on the, the door or the window ledge. and I put my left hand up against the roof and when he hit us, he didn't slide us. He flipped us clear over on our on our top. We slid across the intersection and hit the curb, and then we slid down the curb. And as I was as we were sliding across there, I was able to look out my window, and it was cover, The curb is coming right at me, and I thought, well, I'm glad that it's a yellow curb, not a red curb, because the red curbs are more pointed. The yellow curbs are more curved, and I thought might not come through my window. Well, it hit. I turned my head away to keep glass from getting my face. We jumped up on the curb and slid down about 30 or 40 feet and finally came to a rest. And uh, my wife was hanging upside down in her seat belt, And um, I thought she is very probably dead. And my sister-in-law was screaming her name. And I said, Donna, I said, be quiet. Stop screaming. I said, Arlie's hanging upside down. I said, she has been hurt seriously if she's alive. I said, I need to come out because the, the when he hit not only did it cave the car in where the, the driver's door went in against the steering wheel but with that buckling like that it pulled the sea ce- or the ceiling the roof of the car down to the point where it literally cut her scalp. Didn't didn't hit didn't go to the bro uh, bone but it literally cut her scalp. Now that's why I said what what she said about the driving saved my life that day. Because I sat a full head taller than she does in the seat. And if I would have been driving, that roof, when it collapsed, or when it caved in, later, it would have come down and crushed my skull because it wouldn't have stopped short of my chin with the way that impact was. And I got I went in the back seat, kicked the back window out, got out, went around to help my wife, and she was hanging upside down. And she had all that I could get to was her left arm hanging out the window we had slid away towards the right and I thank God for that because if we had slid towards the left it would have sheared her arm off but I get down and I first of all I took her pulse because as I said at that time I'd been in medical work for 35 years and we'd been married for 35 years uh, we, I began both when, in 1964 and um, I took her pulse, her brachial pulse and her wrist and she had no pulse, and I took her pulse in her elbow, um, and I've got a mental block on that, popliteal pulse in her elbow, and she had no pulse there. And I waited, and I took it again in the wrist, and nothing, and I took it again in the elbow, and nothing, backward. And I did that four times in each place, waiting in between times, To see if, you know, maybe I wasn't calling, maybe I wasn't picking it up or something. But I had, um, like I said, 35 years of uh, medical experience. One year of them being a hospital corpsman in Vietnam. And I helped establish the first surgical team in the military that took place in uh, October 66 and 67. So the ability to take the pulse was beyond question. And she had no pulse and I held her hand and I prayed and I said Lord Jesus please don't let her be dead but if she is I accept that and I know that you will give me the grace to get through it and I said in Jesus name amen and I had reached under and when I stood lay down on my stomach and could reach back. I could just barely touch her chin. And the first thing I thought, is don't don't move her chin because if she has a cervical neck fracture, it could sever her spinal cord. So I finished praying and I got up to walk around. I could hear the sirens and I asked where the medical was. and They said, coming down 18th Street right now. And I walked back around there and I knelt down and I picked up her hand and I checked her pulse and it was going, boom, 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 boom. I'm tremendously Hard and loud. And I says, Thank you, Lord Jesus. And in my mind, Don, I could picture myself pushing her around the wheelchair for the rest of our lives. Because I had seen how hard she'd been hit. And I said, Lord, if if that's your will, I accept it. I'm I'm willing to accept it happily because I thank you for the extra time you've given us. And about the time Phil tapped my shoulder, <coughs> uh, Paramedic says, We'll take it from here, sir. And I said, All right. And so they got her out, took her to the hospital and did a full-body CAT scan on her and found out that she had um, two severe, or she, she had a severe brain concussion on both sides of the brain. They were both swelling. And um, they weren't bleeding, fortunately, but they were both swelling. And <coughs> she had um, three fractured ribs. She had three fractures of the pelvis, and um, she had just been really roughed and scraped up, and the doctor came in, the neurosurgeon came in and told me, he, I'd worked in for him a long time, he says, Ronnie, so I'm going to take over Arlie's treatment. He said, um, she is severely hurt, as you well know, but he says she is going to make it through. And I said, well, thank God for that. The next morning, she was in intensive care. And she was awake and able to talk to me. And she was in intensive care for two days and then went into the hospital in a single room for three days. And after those five days, the doctor came to us and said, Arlie's well. She's able to go home. He says uh, she does 30 days bed rest with pillows under her knees and uh, get, a, get a bedside potty for her. I don't want her to try to walk the bathroom or anything. And he says, then at the end of 30 days, come in and see me. So we did, and he says, she's doing great. And then the gynecologist that had uh, been, um, or the, the uh, yes, the gynecologist, uh, Dr. James Harris, wonderful fellow, uh, but he had been in the the uh, room. He, he had seen what Arlie's problems were and things. And, and so he came to me, and he says, Ronnie says, Arlie ever complained of a, problem with her ovary and i said no he's well he says um when we examined her I, I examined the full body cat's uh mri and he said um she has about a five inch cyst on one ovary he says that's a very big cyst and he says um if it hasn't been bothering her it will shortly he says so what we need to do is go in through the Laparoscope and drain that cyst, and I said, "Well, that's finest, but I want to give it a couple months in order for the pelvic fractures to heal, so that they don't get displaced when we're moving her, and she has to go through that huge operation, pelvic operation. They have to take, open up intestine, or open up the abdomen, move the intestines out of the way, get cleared down, and put screws and plates on the pelvic fracture." And I says, I want to uh, keep her stabilized and give her a couple months to heal so we don't dislodge them. And he said, that would be a great idea. So on December the 19th uh, was the date that we had for her to be operated on. And she went in, and they went in, to, in with the laparoscope to look at the ovary. And the nurse that was in the room called me and says, Ron, she's Dr. Harris said he didn't like the looks of this ovary and wants to know if it's okay with you that he takes it out and sends it to pathology. And I said, you tell Dr. Harris to do whatever he deems necessary and proper. And um, so I waited and about an hour and a half later, I said, well, I said, there are some other folks waiting in the, in the uh, lounge with me. And I said, I'm going to, um, Go down and see if the operation is done yet. And as I was walking down the hallway, Dr. Harris and Dr. Hurd, the general surgeon that had been in on the operation, were walking up. And they saw me and Dr. Harris smiled and said, Ron, said, you're not going to believe this. but And then he stopped. And he looked at me and he smiled and says, yes, he says, let me rephrase that. He said, out of everybody I know, I think you would be the first to believe this. And I said, well, What are we talking about, Jim? What's this? And he said, that accident was a miracle of God in disguise. And I said, okay, how do you mean? He says, I took the first ovary out and sent it to the pathologist. And it came back positive ovarian cancer. And I knew what that meant. Ovarian cancer meant Generally speaking, five years maximum life expectancy last year a difficult one of the chemo and things And I I didn't regret that Don uh, And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm saying this because it's true I didn't regret that. I just paused for a moment and I just had a quiet process. Thank you, Jesus for the extra five years Because she could have been killed in that accident And now I know what the expectation is from ovarian cancer and he says. And then he says, when I looked at the second one, he says, it looked the same as the first one. So I took it out and sent it to pathology. And he said, the report came back positive ovarian cancer. And three pathologists had checked both those ovaries and confirmed that. He said, but the pathologist said that the cancer had not gotten through the capsule around the ovaries yet. So we took the ovaries out, and we believe that that um, we got all the cancer. And we took abdominal washings and things. There were no cancer cells in that. So he says, I, I believe that we got all the cancer. He says, but I'm going to set Arlie up with a five-year cancer regimen follow-up with Dr. Um, Brock Wittenberger. And he says, uh, we'll see what that turns out. And so we went over and set up the regimen. And it was uh, coming in and seeing Dr. Wittenberger twice a year for the first three years and then once a year um, for the two following years so that they could see if anything else was was growing or anything, if it had metastasized or anything like that. And at the end of the five years, we went in and see Dr. Wittenberger and he smiled at said, you don't need to come back and see me if, unless it's just to say hello. He's because you are cancer-free. Now, this December the 19th we will be celebrating her 21st year of being cancer free from ovarian cancer in both ovaries, and that is unheard of. Um, in fact, the doc- some of the doctors from St. Vincent's, I worked at, at uh, Billings Clinic, and some of the doctors in St. Vincent's used to come down and do a case there. or Help one of our surgeons do a case there, and we would get talking, and our surgeon would mention, "How's your wife doing?" And I say, "She's doing excellent." And um, a couple of the doctors looked at me, and and they said, uh, "Oh, is there a problem with your wife, Ron?" And I said, "Well, there was." I said, "She had ovarian cancer, on uh, both in both ovaries." And so, uh, I said, "But um, I said, she had the ovaries taken out, and." Uh, she is cancer-free now. And they said, what? I said, she's cancer-free and um, doing great. And that was the talk of both hospitals for about four or five months. One doctor came down and, and um, he came in and that conversation took like that. And he looked at me he says, you're the one. And I says, uh, I'm the one that walked. And he says, you're the one whose wife had cancer in both ovaries and uh, she was operated on and she's doing great. I says, yes, she's cancer-free. He says, well, that's been a real topic of conversation up at St. Vincent's. He says, because in all of the medical history combined, ovarian cancer has never been caught that early. Usually it's caught through the usual procedure and uh, by that time it's going down the ovaries. And it's going out of the ovaries and down the tubes and into the uterus and into the cervix and by that time it's metastasized to the uh, to the uh, abdominal walls and sometimes the liver and things. It's never caught that early. I said, "Well, I said we believe it's a miracle of God." So there again, just like with my oldest sister and uh, that first personal confrontation with cancer, and yet the assurance that God gave us. To see her through it and to minister to her through it. And then Arlie's sister, Bonnie. And then it really came home. And it was Arlie herself. That was in 1999. Um, October. October's always been kind of a strange month, I guess. But October of uh, 2017, three years ago, next month, um, I had a, a bunionectomy done. And... Um, it was usual when you me with some pain following up, you know, trying to keep from walking a lot of things. And um, we were sitting at home one time, and Arlie looked, she says, Ron, she says, there's something in your eye. And I said, what do you mean there's something in my eye? She says, there is something in your eye. She says, it looks like some kind of a big slug or something. And she says, it's crawling across, oh, it looks like it's crawling across towards your pupil. I said, what are you talking about? And so I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror the light, and I looked in the mirror said, oh my goodness. And there was a spot of tissue about three quarters of an inch long and about an eighth of an inch wide. And it started out on the iris, the white part of my eye, and it was crawling right up and it was, looked like it was about a, a sixteenth, maybe an eighth of an inch from my pupil. And I said, well, I'm going to have to go get that checked out. So I went into uh, Billings Clinic, and I went to the ophthalmology department, and the ophthalmologist looked at it and says, Ronnie, I don't have have a clue what that is. He said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I said, well, what would you suggest? Well, he says, there is a um, specialist in Bozeman. I'll give you his name and and, uh, office number and things. And he says, I would suggest that you go, and uh, he works in more in that kind of a pro- eye problem, and you you need to go and see him. And I said okay, so he gave me the the um, information, and I went home and told Arlie about it. She said, well, "What are we going to do?" And I said, "Well, I said I guess we're going to have to go to Bozeman, and it had been snowing and it snowed about six inches deeper." So and I said, "But I sure hate to be slogging around trying to walk in snow with this." Uh, bandaged foot and things, and she says, "Yes." Yeah. Well, what what other recourse do we have? And I said, "Well, I think I I'll go down to Doctor Threet now. Uh, Doctor James Threet is is a very dear friend of mine. He's a uh, an outstanding or uh, not orthopedic um, eye surgeon, and um, I said I will go down and have him take a look at, it. and so." I called, him, got an appointment for the next week. Went down there. Doctor Three took a look at it. He says, "Ron, he says, I don't know. He says, I've never seen anything like this." He says, "I took my training in the early seventies, and he says I have been in in uh, eye surgery since then." He says, "I've never seen anything like this at all." And I says, "Well, what what are we gonna do?" He says, "Well, I'm not sure." And I told him what this doctor f- uh, from the ophthalmology department in Billings Clinic he said. He said, well, he says, I think that would probably be a very good idea to go and get a, a diagnosis of someone more specialized. In them. And I said, well, Dr. Three says, could you excise it and send it in for a biopsy, see what it is, so that we know what we're dealing with? And he said, yes, he says, I can do that. So he excised it and um, I was walking around with a patch of my eye for a few days and he's sending in the pathology and the three pathologists, we don't have don't have a clue what that is. We've never seen anything like that before. And he told me he says, uh, "What I'm going to do is I'm going to send it back to Emory Eye University." He says it's the leading eye clinic in America for um, um, progressive explanation and things, where they they do diagnoses and things. And he says, in fact, when I called, he says, I found out that. My professor that I had been trained under is now the head of the oncology department, the eye oncology department there, and he says, he said, "Get send me the the tissue uh, slides." He said, "Send me the all the information of the cases. I want to take a look at this." And so, Doctor Three sent it in, and uh, he called me, asked me to come in the office about a week later, and he said, "Well, he says we've got." A confirmed diagnosis of it. And I said, okay. I said, what is this? First of all, it does not metastasize. So you don't have to worry about it going from there to your liver, to your brain, and that it does not metastasize. He said, But what it is, is a non-differentiated invasive cell carcinoma. And he says, it is a very serious cancer problem that if it is not treated, it will devour, so to speak, the whole eye. It will it'll ruin the whole eye. And I said, uh, and he says, and then we don't know what it would do going from the eye, maybe up the optic nerve, the brain. I said, well, what, what do we do with it? He said, well, he says, so that's what I asked my ex-professor. And he says, you've done everything that needs to be done. He's now what you need to do is you need to watch it every three months to see if anything grows back. If anything grows back, make the excision a little wider, get better margins, and continue to watch it. He says excising it and uh, watching it is all there is to treatment. And so um, he did that, and we watched it, and uh, I went in for th- every three months for a year, and then every six months, and then that was last September, was my last time in it. And uh, I'm scheduled to go in to have him take a look at it again this month. And he told me, he said, um, everything is clear. You have no cancer. You are completely clear of the cancer. And I said, well, thank God. Now, the double blessing here is that Dr. Threet is a born-again Christian. And it is amazing, Don, at um, the peace and joy you can have in the midst of something like that crisis to be able to have your doctor join hands with you and your wife and pray and thank God for what's happened. And so that was it. I mean everything was fine, you know well, just really we beat cancer twice in, in our own immediate family. We'd beat cancer twice twice. And I was so thankful for that. And I had a rash on my forehead, left side of my forehead here. And I had it for about two years, and it hadn't healed up. And I thought it was from my hat band riding on it, but my hat band came down lower than the rash. And so I went into a dermatologist, and and, and deaconess or our ambulance clinic, and uh, dermatologist by the name of Dr. Rick. And he looked at it, and he said, well, Ron, he says, this is precancerous tissue. And I said, what, what do you mean by that, doctor? And he says, well, he says, if it's left to itself, it will definitely turn into skin cancer. Now, as soon as he said that, I uh, that really rang a bell because um, um, skin melanoma is one of the most dangerous cancers there is. It's the easiest of all cancers to to uh, heal, to cure, if they can find it and take it out before it metastasizes. But the problem is, most people don't think anything about a rash or about a, a mole or something like that. And um, it turns out to be melanoma and um, it can metastasize. My, my son had a friend of his that he was working with in, at the city yards. And, and um, one Friday, the guy was 34 years old. And one Friday, he told my son, he says, We're well, on. He said, I'm going to go home around day. And he said, I'm not feeling good. He says, so, I'm going to have to go to the doctor Monday. And Ron says, Well, okay. So You have a good weekend. and Get some rest. He says, Okay. Well, he went to the doctor Monday, and he got a hold of Ron, and he says, so, Hey, buddy. He says, Bad news. And my son said, What? What's that? And he says, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, <clears throat> It's stage four melanoma. And I says, What? Well, how long does he have left? He says, Doctor says not over six months, Th- three months, three months, almost to the date of when he went in. To the doctor, they held his funeral. So that's, that's the danger of not going to see about what this thing is, what cancer is, because cancer can be fought and it can be beaten. And God has shown me that. So I went. I went to the the um, dermatologist, and he told me he's. I'm going to give you some ointment to put on that spot. And I had some on my uh, forehead, some on my nose, and a spot on my hand. You can see a, a scar there from where the the uh, mm-hmm. medicine was. He's. This medicine will only affect the bad tissue, the cancer tissue. He said it won't harm the the good tissue at all. He says don't be concerned about overspreading spreading. He said, make sure you get a good covering. So I said, okay. He said, I want you to do that once a day, every day, for three weeks. And then he said, I want you to quit, quit applying it for a month. At the end of that month, come in and see me. He said, now what's going to happen during that month is that spot is going to, or those spots are going to turn real red and angry looking, and it's going to look like you, you had a scald on your face or something. He said, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be ugly. He said, and then he said, they're going to dry up and they're going to just kind of scale off, fall off my scales. He said, I want you to come in and let me take a look at it. And the, I left that, the office that day with that medicine and I was walking out to the um, parking lot and I was walking along there and uh, I guess I having a pity party, and you know, nobody ever attends a pity party, but the person and the devil. And uh, so I was having a pity party, but, you know, and I I was was praying as a walk. I said, God, why? Why cancer again? I, you know, Arlie had cancer we beat it. I had eye cancer we beat it. Why cancer again? And God spoke to my heart. And here's exactly what, now some people say, well, I don't believe God's, well, I'm sorry for them. But here's exactly what God spoke to me about. He said, why are you worrying? It's just cancer. And that hit me enough to where it stopped me in my tracks, and I thought, "You're right. It's just cancer." And the name of Jesus is above every name, and every name must be surrendered to Jesus. And that means cancer. I said, "Okay, Father." I said, "Thank you." I said, "If the devil wants to go a third round, then we're willing to do that." Well, I went through the routine. I did the once a day for three weeks, and nothing for the month and went back in and Dr. Rick took a, his little lighted eyeglass thing and he, he looked all over and he said Ron he said you're cancer free he said every bit of that tissue that was there on your forehead on your nose it's gone he says there's no danger of it turning into cancer now." he said the precancerous tissue is all gone and I said well thank the Lord for that so I know that that can be. But then, as, as you and I both know, comes the question, what if it's not? I mean, what, what if, for some reason, beyond my understanding, my knowledge, uh, what if God would have taken my wife? Or, or what if God took me? Uh, we pray, we have faith, and sometimes... It just doesn't work out right from our standpoint. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a problem that he had. He said it was a thorn in the flesh given to from the devil to keep him humble because of the revelations and blessings that God had given him. And he said, I prayed for God to remove this thing three times. And he said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Most gladly will I therefore glory in my infirmities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, he was not a masochist saying I enjoy the, the pain or the problems or whatever. No. But he what he was, he was a Christian who was saying, I know what God can do. And if God can bless my life and get more glory out of a continual physical problem, causing me to de- depend completely upon Him. If He can get more glory out of my life in that way, then He can't have a spontaneous, miraculous healing. Then, Lord, not my will be yours be done. And I've often thought about that passage of Scripture, and I referred back to that when we were going through these cancer episodes. And what we need to realize is, just like with my sister Ruby. And, and uh, my sister-in-law, Bonnie, um, they did not beat the cancer disease by getting well. They both beat the cancer disease by getting delivered out of all sickness and into glory. You know, it's kind of like this coronavirus. Somebody asked me when I first broke out, I said, well, what, what do you think about this coronavirus? And I said, well, I've been thinking about it, praying about it. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, I said, there are two options. I'm either going to get the coronavirus or I'm not going to get the coronavirus. And I said, now I'm a born-again Christian, so I'm just going to trust the Lord. with it. If I don't get the coronavirus, wonderful. That's a, a win for me. If I do get the coronavirus, then there are two options. I'm either going to get over it or I'm not. If I get over it, that's a win for me. If I do not get over it, if I'm one of the statistics from it, I'm a born-again Christian. Like I said, I'm going to be in glory with Jesus. That's a win-win for me. So that's how I look at the corona- coronavirus. That's how I look at cancer. Or... But I, I had... Um, diverticulitis, and and I had to have my entire left colon taken out in 2005, I believe it was, and uh, my doctor told me, I'm going to have to take out your entire left colon, and I I know what what that meant, because I'd worked in dozens of those operations. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, let's do it. Why? Because, first of all, I had faith in my doctor, he's an excellent doctor, but that wasn't the reason. I have faith in my Lord. And that faith does not guarantee you a healing. It does not guarantee you happiness. But it does guarantee you a deliverance. And it does guarantee you joy. And many people don't realize that there's a big difference between happiness and joy. But there is. Happiness is a surface emotion. Happiness is where something happened that you're delighted in and you laugh and you feel good. But joy is that deep, settled peace and acceptance that you have when you're, when you're serving God and He lets you know that all is well with your soul. And your body, what's that? That's temporary. But one of the greatest demonstrations of joy that I ever saw was um, back in 1971. I led a young teenage girl to Christ. And and um, she was in our church for maybe a year, year and a half, ago, and then they moved. And uh, through the years, she got out of church and, and drifted away and uh, met a boy. And and uh, they fell in love and they got married. And then they both went to church and got their lives straight out of the Lord. And uh, they had a baby, a beautiful baby. And then the baby got sick. And they were praying for this baby and um their hearts were just broken and a doctor called them into his office and said the baby died and it just almost crushed these young people well i found out later on that her pastor uh is a good man pastor of a good church her pastor was out of town for some denominational business and um so she called me and explained what the situation was and asked me if I would preach the baby service. And I said, yes, I will. And so <clears throat> we had it in a funeral home, and there's probably a couple hundred people there or so. And um, we had the service. It was, a, it was a good service. They went out to the graveside to have the graveside service. And here's where the joy came in. There was that little... Casket which is about three feet long, maybe. And there were these two young parents standing there holding hands, kind of leaning on the coffin. And they looked at each other and they looked over towards me, towards the crowd. And I could see the tears just streaming down their face on both sides. I mean, that Don, they were heartbroken, they were crushed. To the very depth of their being. Their baby. Was gone. And they were weeping. Just almost convulsively. But they were smiling. Even though they were crying. And tears came. They were smiling. And after the service was over. I stayed long enough to talk to them. And I said, um, Karen, I said, I noticed something. She says, What's that, Brother Ron? I said, When you and your husband were standing there at the coffin, and you were holding hands, and you were weeping so brokenly. Such sadness. As I, I my heart went out to you. I said, But then I saw you were smiling. She looked at me and she says, Yes, Pastor. She said, because we had the joy of Jesus in our lives, and like God told Jake, or told uh, David, the child cannot return it to you, but one day you will go and be with him. And she's that knowledge, that assurance, is the joy that enabled us to, smi- to smile in the in the midst of the sadness of our broken wow we we need to get over the idea as individuals as as uh, people as as churches we need to get over the idea that death is the end of something the only thing death is the end of is this field of battle where there's misery and problems and trouble that for the Christian now for the for the non-christian I'm sorry to say this but it's very true for the non-christian if they go into death not knowing Jesus, everything that they've ever experienced in this life is going to be the closest thing to heaven that they ever get. And hell is so much worse. And that's why God extends his love to everyone. And when we as as Christians, when we as the church can begin to realize that and begin to understand that you know, death is not the end of anything except This physical sphere of misery and problems. But it's a doorway to God's grace and glory. When when we will be able to come to that realization honestly, truthfully, things are going to change. The church is going to start growing. People are going to get interested because they're going to see something in Christianity that's really worth having. But you know you, sadly, you see so many people that that are Christians, and I'm not I'm not dechristianizing them for it. They are Christians. They have committed their lives to Christ, but they've just not gotten in. They've not gotten involved. They've not gotten to the point where they can rejoice in their relationship and energetically enjoy knowing Jesus Christ and the power of faith, and that. It transcends life and death. So far, it it goes all the way through eternity, and um, we sing the song when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun, because there's there's no time limits on eternity. I remember when I went to the service in nineteen sixty four. January the 5th, 1964. I was living in Nebraska and they flew me to San Diego Naval Station. I went to boot camp there. Boy, that was a that was a culture shock. It was. Um, on the plane, Sirs, is there anything we get you and I thought, man, hmm, if I'd known this was going to be treated, I would have enlisted about four years ago. Well, we get there and this way, gentlemen, please, excuse me, watch your steps, sir, you know, wow, you know, and we go and get in the bus, and we get in the bus, and they drive us into San Diego Naval Station Compound, and they uh, shut those big gates, they stop the bus, tell us to get off the bus, and line up there, well, you know, we've got 50 or 60 guys from 17 to 21 and 22, and they're all talking and this fella asked us if we'd depart from the bus and get over there and stand in the line and you know the line was a crowd as all it was and all of a sudden the hammer dropped and there was this guy that came out and he started cussing us out I mean literally cussing us out just really abusive language and I thought well he can't say that to me I mean the respect those people were giving coming out here. Yeah, you ever heard of bait? (laughs) But the guy was, I mean, it's a wonder his teeth weren't burned out. I mean, he was using some horrible language. And then, I was introduced to the reality of the fact that the, the military life is totally different from the civilian life. And so we went through four months of boot camp with all kinds of petty things. I mean, things that just make you mad enough to smack somebody because they were so petty. Like, we had a locker, and we had, uh, I believe, six pairs of socks, and four of these pairs of socks had to be rolled in such a way that the seam on the toe was perfectly straight and all lined up where you could see the seams. The other two, you had one on, you had one in the wash. Okay, you were... Shirts had to be in the locker. Were you at the service ever since? Okay, You're because I I didn't want to just rehash something you knew. But your shirts had to be in the, in the locker, folded properly, the buttons all in line, in specific. Give me a break. Take the shirts, drop them in there. Take the pants, drop. Them. Let's go do something important. And man, I I just stood over that because I was always hard headed and independent and and. Um, Talk to my wife and she'd say obstinate not obnoxious. <laughs> but uh, you know, I just just I didn't mind somebody telling me to do something if there's a reason for it. But giving a person 50 push-ups or three laps around the parade ground because one of the seams on their socks wasn't aligned, what are you talking about? And then we went into a class and a fellow explained some things to us. He says, now guys, I don't know what your MOS is, what your particular branch you're going into. Like I was in the medical corps and somebody's in in uh, of mate taking care of the ship and somebody else was uh, in artillery or firing and and then somebody else was, the one that was calculating the the trajectory and things and all this good He says, let's imagine that you're out there on the ship and you are in a firefight. And you've got enemy aircraft coming in at you, like we had in World War II with Kamikaze bombers and things. And he says, you are the one that is calculating and adjusting and giving the gunner the instructions of where to shoot. And you give a very close calculation and he shoots and he's missing them By missing every plane he shoots at about 200 yards. Because something way down here, it's just a little bit, as it goes up, it gets a lot bigger. And so that gunner that you gave the wrong coordinates to cannot aim straight. And so you've got a plane that comes in and crashes into your ship and maybe sinks it, maybe kills 20 or 30 or 50 of your comrades' arms. Because you didn't pay attention to detail. And that's just one of the reasons why we insist that the lines of your socks be exactly is not because the socks are important, but because we want you to pay attention to detail. What in the world does that have to do with the discussion of cancer? Well, we we need to take some biblical boot camp training and get some concepts and precepts down in our heart so that we can embrace the details of what God says to us. And God tells us uh, in Jeremiah 17 verse 24, it says, Heal me and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For thou art my praise. God is a healing God. God is a saving God. But God is a, a God that is worthy of all of our praise. How much do we praise God? we we have complaints by the truckloads and the praises that most people have just on just I'm not talking about some special occasion, but most people have the general praises you could carry on the back of a motorcycle and complain in and, and contrast to, to the truckload of complaints why because they don't understand the concepts of of attention to detail When Jesus was hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying and in agony, and he looked out at the crowd, and guess what? He looked through the crowd, beyond the crowd, eons beyond the crowd. And he looked down at Don Corcoran and Ron Palmer, and he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't realize what they're doing. Oh, wasn't it that that soul didn't know that he found that nail on that hand? He'd done that many times for her. But he didn't understand what he was doing. He was doing this to the one who created the, 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 the ore that they mined to get the iron to make the hammer. He created the trees that the hammer handle was made out of, that the cross that he was laying on was made out of. And he was laying there submitting himself to this torture for the sake of the ones that tortured him. But the they don't know the details of it. Oh, I don't want to hear about religion. I've heard so much about that junk. Listen, seriously, neither do I. I think religion is one of the worst things in the world. And I'm a pastor. been pastor for 49 years. Preacher for 51 years. People might say, what, "What, what's going on with you? Nothing's wrong going on with me." But you see, religion is man's attempt to reach God through what man can do. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to read the Bible every day. I'm going to, I'm going to say my prayers at night. And everything's good. Well, but have you ever been born again? Have you ever personally asked God to forgive you for your sins and ask Jesus to come in your heart? Huh? Uh, what do you mean? That's the general the general mentality of the people that have swallowed this line of garbage that the devil gives them about religion. True Christianity is not a religion per se. It's a relationship. When I got married, I did not get marriage. I did not get some kind of an institution. When I got married, it was a a personal exchange. I took a woman to be my wife, and I gave myself to her to be her husband. And praise God, this last June the 20th, we celebrated our 56th anniversary of that day. And I thank God for every moment. And i can got to say before man and God, I do not regret one day of my entire marriage. And boy, I thank God for that. It's wonderful. But why? Because as young Christians, four years after we got married, we committed our lives to the Lord. We had a good relationship before then. Because we made up our minds and we discussed it before we ever got married. We weren't going to do like our parents did and end up the same way they did with both families being broken, and divorced, and such not that. We weren't gonna do that. And for four years, we didn't do that because we had made a commitment and we were paying attention to the details of that commitment. But after that first four years, we committed our lives to Jesus. And then our our marriage relationship went from a very good relationship to a fantastic, tremendous relationship. What's the difference? Because we had a pastor who was wise enough to instruct us about paying attention to the details that God gives us about marriage. For example, in Ephesians 5.25, it says husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, what does that say? That says that, first of all, our love for our wives ought to be a sacrificial love. Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for it. And I am to love my wife the way he loved me. And what I found is that when I do that, she is the kindest, sweetest, most compassionate, most caring person in the world in response. That's why he says, wives, reverence your husbands. Or respect your husbands, respect their their leadership role, their their position that God has given. And not to be lauded over. No, because God just established the positions according to his will. Not because Adam was such a great guy. God established the positions according to his will. I mean, the whole thing took place as part of it. But when when we begin to look at the details, just like in boot camp. I looked at the details. I got out of boot camp for the next three years and nine months or three years and eight months. I was able to perform and to function very well with honor, with commendation. Didn't didn't get the commendation medals, wasn't interested in that. I just wanted somebody to know that here was one sailor that was doing his job the way it was called to be done. And that was it. Um. I remember one time we were off the coast of Vietnam and um, all of a sudden the ship went to General Quarters and that meant we were getting ready for an attack. But out there, I mean, you know, the the Vietnamese didn't have battleships. So, you know, um, maybe China was getting involved. We didn't know, but anyway, Everybody took the stations, and then the word came down that our sister ship, now I was on the Iwo Jima at the time, and our sister ship, the Oriskany, had a fire break out in the powder hold. And um, I don't know whether you've ever seen the size of those guns on the ship or not. But now a a 5-inch 38 is about that big around. It's 5 inches across in diameter. And that's one of the small ones. And they go all the way up. And and, um, their their powder charges would be like a a pillow. It would be about 2 feet long and about 10 inches through with powder packaged in there. And they'd take one of those powder packages and set in the breach of, of that ship. And then they'd drop a projectile in front of it and they'd haul off and fire. And man, that thing had tremendous distance and power. And there was a, a fire broke out in the Ariscones powder hole. And if that got down to the main powder area and exploded it would blow the Oriskany completely in half. Sink it in a half an hour. And we had been notified, and uh, it was about 400 miles away. And that's why we, were, we went to General Quarters, everything battened down, and then you could hear that thing. Vroom. And uh, the captain of the ship was really gunning it to get to the Oriskany. Well, while we were traveling, the head of our surgical team came in and said, uh, Guys, he said, I've got something to tell you, something to share with you. He's and there were about 12 of us at the time. And he says, um, he explained what the situation was. He says, Now we're we're trying to get there as quick as we can, hoping and praying to get there before the powder hold explodes. He says, We are told that there are several injured aboard the Iriscane. So when we get to the Oriskany, we're going to need to have a team of volunteers to go aboard the Oriskany with our firefighters and things and um, help evacuate the wounded. He says, now, this is purely a, a volunteer assignment because if the ship explodes during the attempted evacuation, he says, everybody that goes aboard will be killed. There's no question about that. He says, so, it's up to you. We need as many volunteers as we can get. Every one of our guys, without a hesitation, without a second thought, every one of our guys stepped forward and said, I'll volunteer. I had a wife and two little babies when I I left home. My oldest daughter was... Two years and one month old, my second daughter was twenty-seven days old when I left home. Twenty-seven days. I never heard them, I never seen them, never touched them for a full year that I was overseas. And I knew that if I stepped onto that ship and that ship blew up, I would never see them again. Not only that, but I knew that I'd never go to heaven because I knew that the way I was living was wrong. But I still volunteered and I've had people ask me, well, why do you volunteer? Were you trying to be brave? No, that wasn't at all. I volunteered because I had made a commitment in the US Naval Station in Omaha, Nebraska on January the 5th of 1964. And I raised my hand and I gave my pledge of honor to honor and obey the military service and to give my all for my country if needed. And there was no argument about it. I mean, we just stepped out. And we ran for about another four or five hours and pretty soon you hear the down ship shifting. I thought, well, that's a sure quick trip. And then the um, captain came on the intercom. And he says, secure from General Quarters. He said, we have just received word that the Ariskanese Damage Control Unit has got the fire out. And the medical personnel are taking care of the wounded. And we will not be needed. He's but my commendations to all of you men. And he turned around and headed back for Vietnam. Now, I'm not just trying to tell war stories, Don. what's What's the importance there? Because if a person makes that kind of a pledge to the military establishment and to their country and without double thinking, without discussing, without, they step forward to go into harm's way to where they may be killed and leave their family alone. If a person can do that for that reason. What should we be able to do for the glory of Jesus Christ who left heaven and took upon himself the form of flesh and lived a sinless life and died a horrible, agonizing sacrificial death for this person. And then to realize not that but he rose from the dead, To show that he had power over death, hell, and the grave for all time and eternity. And that he would be with me forever. On the basis of my commitment to him as my Savior. So I say, you're right, Lord. It's just cancer. It's just diabetes. It's just a heart attack. Friend of mine, we were at a conference in um, Tampa, Florida, Tampa, Florida, just right down that area. And he was preaching, and he got up there and he said, um, Heart attack, diabetes, cancer, car wreck, drive by shooting. He says, What's the difference? He says, Each one of them is just the vehicle that God has chosen. Carry us to glory, through. And I've thought about that. You know that's that's true. That's true. It's up to the Lord how He wants us to do it, and He's got a purpose for it. Because the way we live, and as Wes said to his, the way we die, speaks volumes to people. Speaks utter volumes to people. And as one wise person once said, just remember this: if you are a Christian. You may be, your life may be the only Bible that they ever read before they get saved. But cancer, you know, it it can it can kill a person. No, cancer can kill millions of people. But it's just cancer. It's still subjective to the power of God. And if it comes, if it attacks, if it hits, as it has a history in my family, it's not a question of. Oh God, can we get rid of this cancer? But it is the question, am I ready to meet my God who is sovereign over this cancer? So I guess that's... By the way, God has something. I've, I've written my autobiography. It's um, entitled with God as my partner and it gives the entire first 75 years of my life. I'll be 78 on the 27th of this month, but it gives the first 75 years of my life and what God has done for us and then I wrote a second book uh, entitled "Don't Stay at Calvary," um, emphasizing the importance of our service to Christ, not just sitting and saying, "Oh, I'm a Christian." And it's in the publishers, in the finishing touches of uh, before it gets published. And I thought, well, that's that's good, you know, that's because writing's not an easy, you know, especially when you're writing something. It's I, anyway, I don't find it. Easy. I, I find it easy to write because God's giving me something to write. But then I look at it, well, you know, I sat down here to write for 30 minutes. It's been four and a half hours. You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's taxing it. And I'm not bemoaning it. I love it. But I thought, okay, now I got that book written and published, Lord, that you told me to. And, and I got this book written. It's in the publishers. Now I'm just going to relax a little bit. And um, what do you mean? It's just cancer. I was getting ready to go to sleep one night, and that I just but and all of a sudden, it re- I was reminded. It came back to my memory of what God had sent me coming out of that doctor's office, walking in my car. It's just can What are you worried about? It's just cancer. I, it's just cancer. Lord, why would you bring that to my mind now? And he says, "Write it." That's all I said. So I now have um, the first nine single space type pages of the third book. It's just cancer, and I'm not trying to um, show anybody what a great author I am, or how uh, glibly I can put phrases and ideas together. That's that's not it at all. But each one that God lays on my heart, I pray that um, they will get into circulation to help somebody, to be a blessing somebody. This person, I don't care whether. They're, 80 years old or whether they're 18 years old or what their capacity of life is this person is sitting at home and trying trying to absorb and and digest and understand this diagnosis that the doctor has just given them you have terminal cancer and they're sitting there stunned they're in shock they they can't get their thoughts together life is done I've just been sentenced to death, and there's there's no way I can escape it. Don, they they need help, they need hope. They need some assurance. They need something bigger than cancer because it's just cancer. And that's what I hope to do. And I guess that's about it.
0: That's a fantastic journey through through cancer and. Multiple people, multiple family members, through your faith, through your family. It's a, it's an amazing story. I look forward to the book. And um, I guess when I sum up all the things you said, that cancer is a battle. Mm-hmm. And yes, it, it may be a death sentence. Yes, it it might be. But when you talked about the joy for those that are in Christ, that the joy is in the Lord. Amen. And that the battle is his. And in that context, just cancer shit is just right.
1: Yeah. It,
0: it's just right.
1: But how shocking that is. When when you get the diagnosis, And if somebody came and said, oh, don't worry about it, it's just cancer, what would be your first response? Try it on for size and see what you think about it. Yeah. You know. But uh, for the Christian, when you stop and think about it, wow, that's, that's it. It is, and the sure gives you something to pray about.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Pastor, that's that's um, I think a perfect landing spot and a perfect, perfect way to end it. Unless you have a, a last thought, I think this would be a a good place to dock the ship.
1: No, I think that uh, we're ready for liberty. <laughs> yes,
0: sir. Well, thank you so much for coming. Look forward thank to you. the book and God bless you.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. God bless you.
0: John. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap. <laughs>